Hello and welcome to Midlife Athlete uh, Podcast. I'm Jason Smith, uh, one half of this uh, hosting team. And uh, as ever, I'm joined by my colleague, Greg. How are you, Greg? Very good. Very good, mate. Looking forward to today. Very interesting yeah. one. Really looking forward to it. So what have you got today? We've got really pleased uh, to say that our guest is a guy called David uh, Robson, who is uh, an award-winning science writer, journalist, uh, who kind of, I suppose, specializes, looking at your stuff, David, in in, in human brain, body and behavior. Would that be a, a fair description? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it's kind of neuroscience, psychology and um, medicine. So, yeah, that's exactly right. And um, you've written for, well, who haven't you written for, really? New Scientist, Guardian, BBC, Atlantic. Um, you've written your first book, was around Intelligence Trap. I've read that one, really enjoyed that one. But we're here really to talk, I guess, about your second book um, called The Expectation Effect, which I think has just been published literally within the last month, I think. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. And yeah, you can get it from all suitable bookstores and online places but we'll put the links and stuff in the uh in the um show notes um so i guess the, the first thing is what what is the expectation effect mm, yeah so it's a phenomenon where our beliefs create self-fulfilling prophecies through uh, changes to our perception our behavior and our physiology so uh, the best example of that would be the well-known placebo effect in medicine. Um, so we know that if you give someone a dummy treatment that they believe is going to be effective, that that can relieve their symptoms. Now, some of that is subjective, uh, you know, just how they feel. And that's for a change in their uh, just their kind of perception, um, how the brain is kind of processing the pain signals. But we also know that actually uh, placebo treatments can change uh our physiology. So, for example, when you receive a placebo painkiller, it's not just reducing the subjective feeling of pain, it's actually triggering the release of things like your endogenous opioids. So that's the same chemicals that you actually have in drugs like morphine, but it's making the brain produce its own opioids that's bringing about a different kind of pain relief. Um, now, that's been really well known in medicine, um, and it's now much better understood, especially with research from the last two decades. But what's really becoming apparent is that actually we're experiencing all kinds of expectation effects throughout life. So not just restricted to when we're at the doctors or in hospital, but also, you know, it's changing the ways that we exercise um, and the benefits that we get from our workouts. It's changing the way we digest food, respond to sleep loss, you know, our performance at work, even how quickly we age. So it's, you know, really, really important. And it's really only just coming to kind of public awareness now, even though that there's this huge body of research in the scientific literature. So how did, uh, how did, how did the book come about? How did you sort of start to get interested in this area and, and, you know, that come out in terms of a book? So I'd, um, you know, been covering like the placebo effect for a long time. Um, but it was actually this, the real trigger was this kind of strange coincidence where there was something in my personal life that just happened to chime with what I was writing about. And that was that I had started taking some antidepressants. And my doctor had told me that one of the common side effects of them would be um, an increased risk of migraines. Um but what I discovered while I was writing a new piece about the placebo effect is that it's often accompanied by the nocebo effect, which is like its evil twin. So what um, these doctors had found is that actually 
when you're giving people these placebo drugs that um you know the positive expectations of the treatment can reduce the actual symptoms of the the illness that it's trying to treat but at the same time things like the warnings about these side effects the expectations that come from those warnings can actually cause the side effects to occur in in fact one of the most common uh, um of these nocebo side effects is actually the migraines that i was experiencing and i actually found a paper that looked very specifically at the drug that i was taking and and that was true that when you have this controlled trial with people taking placebos and people taking the actual pills that there's really very little difference between the two in terms of the people experiencing the migraines so it's very likely to be a result of expectations and actually that realization that maybe my headaches were real but they weren't being caused by the direct chemical action of the drugs that actually really helped to bring me a lot of pain relief like i kind of went out in the uh, for lunch after having read the paper came back and by the the end of the day um my pain had completely vanished um and that just to me actually just showed how powerful the expectation effect can be um you know like uh, it really showed that actually it was having a huge effect on my well-being in that particular case and that just made me much more curious about how else we might be affected by our expectations so i i kind of searched the scientific literature kept a kind of long um word document with all of these references to you know hundreds of papers and a few years later it just uh, seemed to me that i had enough to write a whole book that could cover all of these different areas of life that i mentioned so knowing that the migraines might have been caused by this expectation effect knowing that did did that cause them to to stop or did you did you continue to have them but maybe the effects of them were not as great as before no yeah it really caused them to stop completely <laughs> which is so striking to me and actually we know again that this is caused by you know part of it could just be perception of pain but actually we also know that when you have an expectation of um getting a headache that actually that can change the brain's biology in some way so um this researcher called Fabrizio Benedetti uh from the University of Turin he was looking at um the causes of altitude headaches um and he actually just set up a nocebo effect amongst his participants and then took them up into the alps and he found that the people who had been told to expect to have a headache were more likely to have the pain but also he saw changes in kind of uh, key chemicals that cause the blood vessels to dilate dilate in the brain and that seemed to be causing the headaches so it seemed to be that there was a very direct biological link from the expectation to changes in the brain to the pain that people were feeling it's fascinating <laughs> it's just yeah it's well amazing. that kind of leads on to the like my next question which was when you were researching this how what's the sort of simple way of explaining how it works i think you kind of alluded to it a little bit there but maybe it might be worth just digging into that in a little bit more detail so that listeners can kind of understand or at least get a sort of semblance of understanding of how this thing might work yeah sure i mean it's the the brain really is seen as this kind of prediction machine now so it's just constantly trying to preempt the kinds of challenges that we're going to be facing and then it parcels out its resources or you know adjust the body's kind of um uh, different parameters within our physiology to kind of help us to try to cope as best as we can with the situation that we're in um and you know so that can you know the brain is connected through the nervous system to things like these um so uh, the kind of blood circulation to change things like your blood pressure 
Um, you know, we know that also the brain itself can respond instantly to different events by releasing different neurotransmitters and different chemicals. So that's where the kind of opioids come in. That Actually, you know, these natural opioids are the endorphins that we might get when we go on a run. You know, the runner's high is partly caused by these endorphins. And it just seems that actually expecting the endorphins to be released actually boosts the chances that they will be released. Um, now, I think in the example that I gave of these... Um, of the altitude headaches, for example, that, um, you know, it's hard to understand why the body would have that response. But I think actually, you know, there are some good uh, kind of benefits to having kind of increased dilation of the blood vessels in the brain. You know, it's actually is helping to let more oxygen get to the brain. So it's almost like if you're told that you might be suffering from low oxygen and then you go up into the mountains and then the brain is naturally trying to adapt to that because of your expectation, you know, that is a good response and it could actually be very beneficial. Uh, similarly, you know, there's all kinds of nocebo responses that you could have, but you could imagine you know, one of the, the common ones is um, kind of nausea or an actual physical sickness, um, like vomiting. And actually, that's really beneficial if the other people in your group have started falling ill because they've eaten something, you know, that might be infected with a food bug. Um, it's just beneficial for the group as the whole to start to feel nauseous and to, to kind of eject the pathogen before it can kind of affect, infect you and cause you permanent damage. So it's really just the brain is preempting what you know, what threats you might be facing and what challenges you might be facing. And then it's just adapting the body in the best possible way. And it's just doing that by fine tuning, you know, things like hormonal balance, blood pressure, all of these things, the kind of movement of food in your guts, you know, it's, we know that the brain is already having this kind of feedback with the body, all your expectations are doing is helping to shape that kind of feedback loop and the exact form that it takes. So it seems to suggest that or reinforces that free will is an, is an illusion. <laughs> There's all this stuff going on in the background, which we are completely unaware of. <laughs> and our yeah. conscious mind is just along for the ride. And <laughs> well, in a way, but so that's it. In a way, like I, I strongly believe that um, it's just a fact, actually, that we're experiencing expectation effects all the time. And like you mm. say, they're going on in the background without us knowing about it. But actually, what what is really great about this new research is showing that once you understand that process, you can try to recalibrate your brain's predictions um, to produce positive expectation effects. So you you can kind of make the most of this process. Well, there was um, before, uh, was it was a couple of days ago, um, uh, 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 Jason and I were chatting on WhatsApp and he sent me a, a link to, uh, to a podcast by the Huberman Lab uh, he was this guy was uh, interviewing Alia, Dr. Alia Crum about mm. mindset um, and um, and how our mindsets towards exercise, stress, work, food, medicine um, is is incredibly powerful. And the, you know, the assumptions that we have about a particular thing, if you have a, a positive or a negative assumption about something, it will have that will be a positive or negative reaction, a physiological reaction, a measurable reaction as well. Which, but it, 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 but it's not fixed. You can get a more, a, you can change your mindset for the better, which is yeah. which is great. Yeah, exactly. And actually, Aliyah Crumb's research is really like very central to my book. You know, like mm, I cite okay. a lot of other researchers, but actually, mm. you know, she performed some of the core studies that I refer to. Um, so, you know, one of her recent studies that I find really inspiring was um, uh, that she 
um, kind of wanted to see whether people's sense of their own innate physical fitness fitness can change how they respond to exercise. Mm. Um, so she, you know, took these participants and gave them a genetic test that was specifically looking at the CREB1 gene, uh, which we know seems to, well, it really seems to be associated with things like your core body temperature as you're exercising. So whether you start to get overheated and your overall physical endurance. Um so she did the test, but she gave the participants sham feedback. So they didn't know, they thought they knew, but they didn't really know what kind of gene variant they had, whether they had one that was positive or negative to their performance. Um, and what she found was that actually those expectations did then change their performance on an endurance workout. So they had more endurance if they thought they were uh, predisposed to exercise and they had worse performance if they thought they were genetically indisposed to exercise. Um, but even... Uh, even more important for me was that actually she looked at all of these physiological measures. So things like the gas exchange within the lungs, like how efficiently the lungs were exchanging carbon dioxide for oxygen. Um, and she found that the expectations in that case turned out to be more important than the effects of the actual gene. Um, so, you know, we know these um, these expectation effects are you know, quite powerfully affecting our fitness. And, you know, I, I try to emphasize to kind of readers and in these kinds of interviews that it's not like you can just go into the gym and imagine that you're an Olympic athlete and you're going to become an Olympic athlete straight away. But actually, you know, these are significant enough that it's going to change your experience in the gym each time you go. And it can either make it a lot more pleasant if you have the positive expectations or a lot more unpleasant if you have the negative expectations. And so, you know, just like over time, like incrementally, that is going to change the trajectory of how well you respond to your workouts and whether you receive the full health benefits. Mm. And and we should say for listeners that uh, Dr. Aaliyah Crum is, is in the Stanford Mind and Body Lab um and um i think her work is sort of framed around mindsets i think is how she terms it but but it, mm. it, and and so i guess my question is is the mindset uh the sort of whole piece and the expectation effect is part of the mindsets thing or or, or is it one and the same thing no yeah there are subtle differences i mean i think she describes and i do love this description as a mindset being a kind of lens through which yes. you view the world. Um, now, I think actually in the experiment I described, that's more of an expectation effect because it's a very specific expectation about a kind of, you know, specific part of their kind of uh, fitness and well-being. Um, but yeah, she has looked at other kinds of mindsets that maybe more like, like you say, like this kind of broader lens. So the stress mindset is one obvious one, and that's just generally whether you believe that stress is uh, enhancing or uh, debilitating um you know i think a lot of people most people probably see it as kind of being inherently debilitating like we assume that if you are stressed you're gonna suffer from exhaustion suffer from poor mental and mm. physical health and it's only bad um but actually she's shown that you know you some people do have this view that actually stress is a kind of source of energy and motivation and that it can be useful it might not be pleasant like she's not asking people to love feeling stressed but she's just saying that actually you know you can see that it's serving a purpose um, and that could be why we evolved to have a stress response because it's actually useful. Um, and so what she found was that with those kind of broad mindsets, looking at the overall effects of stress, that actually that can have a really powerful effect on people's, um, the way they respond to different challenges, 
um, you know, the long-term health effects, whether they suffer from exhaustion, all of that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's how I would kind of differentiate between an expectation and a kind of broader mindset. The, the mindset is that lens that's helping you to perceive a whole situation in a different way. Yeah, and and, and I think um, I've just I was reading some of her stuff the other day, and the work she's done with the stress stuff, taking that to the extreme on the positive stress. I think she's been working with some Navy SEALs, the US Navy SEALs, which has been really fascinating. And and for listeners, and we'll put this link again in in, in the show notes, but I think there's a there's she has some tools and and um uh, stuff on on the uh, Stanford Mind and Body Lab. So if you want to learn more about the sort of stress mindset and how you might be able to to change that, I think there's some there's some references there. Sorry, Greg, you were gonna. No, it, it was just um, she was because she was talking about these core beliefs about and you, you mentioned uh, uh, David about the um, uh, what was it you were talking about um, stress being bad and. Uh, or health, you know, and she was also talking about healthy foods. Uh, healthy foods can be certainly Western in the Western world can be construed as you know rabbit food. It's just it's not it's it's not particularly uh, um, pleasant, but it's good for you. And then all you know, the the um, so there's almost a negative connotation. So if your core belief is that you're probably not necessarily going to eat healthier foods, um, so. That was that for me. That was fascinating. And then from there, with on the, the bit of the podcast I, I listened to, um, she went on to talk about the milkshake study. Mm, did she? Yeah. Did is that something you mentioned in your book? Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to give us a, a rundown on that because that is fascinating? Yeah. So I mean, and you're totally right that it's like there's this. It's not found everywhere, but it's found in a lot of countries, especially like the UK and US. We have this kind of underlying kind of intuition or belief that. Um, uh, healthy is unappetizing or mm. unhealthy is tasty you know that's been shown uh, numerous times and actually some cultures don't have it so it's not doesn't seem to be so prevalent in france but it definitely is in the uk and the us um and so to, to kind of test whether this has a physiological response on people's um on uh, after people have eaten food um, she just asked participants on two different occasions to drink a milkshake and in reality, they were the same milkshake, exactly the same nutritional contents. But um, but she just changed the labelling. So one was uh, kind of advertised to the participants as um, this kind of decadent, luxurious milkshake. You know, she emphasised how creamy it was, how much ice cream had gone into it. You know, like it felt like a real treat. Um, the other time they drank it, um, they were told that actually it was this kind of senses shake, as she termed it. It was, you know, just healthy you know, low calories, like really low calories, like um, I can't remember how many, like 150 or something, you know. It just didn't sound like you were really going to enjoy it and that it was going to be um, an appetizing, uh, enjoyable meal. And so she found that actually that had an effect on the hormone ghrelin and the way that was expressed within the body. So typically, if you have like a high calorie meal, um, your ghrelin kind of peaks and then drops. Um, so it peaks before you eat the meal and then it drops. And the ghrelin is the hunger hormone. So the higher it is, the more hungry you feel. Um, and so as you would hope, after you have a meal, it should drop because you, the body shouldn't still be feeling hungry after a meal. And that was exactly what um, Alia found after the participants had eaten the luxurious milkshake. Um, you know, it peaked and then uh, fell in exactly the way it would after any big meal. Um, but that didn't happen at all with the... Um, with the kind of uh, sensor shake, like it just remained high 
Um, so the participants, you know, had eaten that, but the hormones were still telling them, you're hungry, you need food. Um, and ghrelin is important because it stimulates appetite, but it also seems to be related with the overall energy balance within the body. So it, it seems to kind of slow metabolism. So you're not, if you're, you haven't had a lot of food and you're feeling hungry, it slows the metabolism so you don't burn like even more food and energy. It's kind of trying to keep your reserves. Um, and so I think what, you know, we don't know this for certain yet, but what her study would strongly suggest is that if you're on a diet and you're constantly feeling that you're eating this kind of healthy but um, not very nourishing food, not it's not giving you enough satisfaction and enough calories. If you feel like that the whole time, you have this sense of deprivation, you're going to feel hungrier more because you have higher levels of ghrelin. And potentially, you're also going to be just burning less, fewer calories uh, throughout the day. And so it's just going to be much harder for you to lose weight. Like, you're just, your body's not setting you up to actually to burn the fat that you've got. It's actually trying to preserve it. Um, so that's another way I think it's, you know, the effects on any occasion are enough for you to notice and to change your, like, experience in the moment. But actually, over time, incrementally, this could um, just tip you towards kind of gaining or losing weight. Um, and it's just making the whole experience of, of trying to control your weight much more difficult if you have that sense of deprivation. Just changing, sort of getting a little bit more specific with this now, there's obviously, and you, you mentioned it right up front, that the expectation effect has an influence on on ageing. And I imagine most of our listeners being probably probably middle-aged. It's very relevant. It's very relevant. Yes, it's very relevant. <laughs> not, not for you yet, David. Um, I should point out to listeners, David is not middle-aged yet. Uh, he's still in the young category. Um, but... You referenced a, a study by I think is it is it Becca Levy, um, oh, who yeah. does who, from Yale who does this did this longitudinal study in uh, in in relation to aging, and I I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about that and the findings because I I found it well frankly astonishing it I, it was incredible <laughs> yeah I mean it is incredible and I actually so I will explain that study um, and I'd say if it was that was the only study we had I would think it was you know one of those cases where you kind of find an outlier that then is yeah. replicated but um but the fact is that after she had performed this study which came out 20 years ago she's actually then um, just built more and more evidence for this effect but yeah so this was a longitudinal study that um uh it kind of the participants had been asked, you know, in midlife, kind of what are your beliefs about aging? Um, you know, do you think like life gets better, worse, or stays the same as you get older? Like just looking at whether they saw it as a decline or maybe a potential opportunity. Um, and what she found was that actually over the next, you know, few decades, that that became a self-fulfilling prophecy for these people, that they, um, you know, if they had the positive age beliefs, they were more likely to experience good health. And they actually lived seven and a half years longer than those who had the negative expectations of aging. So like a really profound result. Um, but like I said, you know, she has repeated that with lots of different samples of participants. She's tried to control within the longitudinal studies for things like the existing health problems. And she's actually shown that, you know, the uh, people's beliefs are formed early and someone's beliefs in their 30s could have an effect on their health four decades later. So in their 30s, you wouldn't expect them to already be experiencing the health problems. It seems that the beliefs come before the health problems. Um, she's also shown that it can have an effect on things like 
the risk of Alzheimer's disease. So people with the positive beliefs are about half as likely to develop oh. Alzheimer's uh, disease compared to those with the negative beliefs. And that's true even if they have a genetic predisposition for wow. Alzheimer's disease. So if they have that high-risk gene, um, the health beliefs, the ageing beliefs are still really important. And I, I, I was- I mean, I I found it fascinating not not only for the stark findings that it you know it's roughly seven seven and a half years difference, mm. but I was trying to track through and trying to think through the physiological sort of implications of it, and and I was thinking, presumably, those expectations might drive physiological responses like maybe higher blood pressure, which I guess then over time means that you're going to you know probably have a lot more cortisol, a lot more sort of stress in your system inflammation and the like and then and, and, and over that period of time that's going to predispose you if you like to certain conditions is that is, yeah. is that what the sort of theory behind how this might be playing out in a sort of physiological perspective yeah exactly so um uh, Becker describes this as a stereotype embodiment theory, and it's like got different strands. So I think like we can't rule out, and we shouldn't rule out because it's really relevant. The fact that actually your age beliefs are going to change your behaviour. Um, you know, if you have a defeatist um, view of aging, then you're just going to um, you're not so likely to bother with things like exercise. You might actually be scared of doing exercise because you're worried that it would damage your body. So that's definitely important. But then, yeah, a separate um, component that's equally important does seem to be the uh, kind of long-lasting physiological uh, responses. Um, and it, it does, it just seems like very plausible and, you know, almost obvious when you actually break it down. Because if you associate aging with decline and vulnerability and, you know, you're worried about your brain not being as sharp as it used to be, but also your body being fragile, like all of the challenges that you face in life are going to feel a little bit more difficult, uh, potentially dangerous. Um, Whereas if you can manage to see the positive elements of aging alongside, you know, some of the kind of uh, disadvantages of aging. So if you, you also acknowledge, and it is true that actually things like general knowledge increase, as you get older, things like vocabulary are much bigger when you're 70, decision making improves right into your 70s and 80s, you know, and you you see that actually you have, you still have a lot going for you at those ages, then you're just less likely to kind of see all of these dangers in your environment, and you're going to feel more capable to kind of deal with challenge. Um, and then that we now know does change how people respond to the challenges physiologically. So it changes things like the blood pressure and the uh, levels of cortisol. And then that also, like you said, changes things like inflammation. So you see that people with the um, positive beliefs have a kind of steady reduction in cortisol and inflammation as they get older, whereas those with the negative beliefs, it increases. And we know that things like high cortisol levels and inflammation over the long term can cause bodily wear and tear. And we can then see those changes within the cells themselves. So things like the epigenetic changes that mark aging, um, that just seems to be accelerated in the people with the negative aging beliefs. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, in um, to summarise, I just feel like actually she's really managed to like go from this one longitudinal study to kind of really connect the dots in a way that is absolutely fits with all of our understanding of the effects of stress and, you know, the long-term kind of damage that can do to our tissues. Mm. Yeah. And has the, I mean, and I don't know whether, whether Becca got into this or whether you came across something and sort of linked stuff through, but I was also trying to 
link it to the impact of exercise. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around the fact that uh, as midlife people, um, are we continuing? Because Greg and I on this podcast, we've sort of, we sort of started this podcast by kind of asking a generic question that we had to each other, but but I think probably widely, which why the hell are, are people in our age still doing, you know, quite quite amazing things um, from an exercise perspective, sometimes even even older than us. And I and I was trying to, it sort of blew my mind a little bit when I was reading your stuff because I was thinking, are we exercising because of our expectations around age or, and, or I suppose, is there, is there any impact that the exercise is also having on those expectations? Mm. So, you know, so I was thinking if we are exercising, so if we've got a positive um, outlook towards expectation around age, we're exercising, is that they're almost reinforcing the sort of expectation effect? Yeah, that, I mean, that's exactly how I see it, is that you can either have like a vicious or a virtuous cycle with these kinds of age beliefs and then your behaviours. So I think the problem if you have the negative age beliefs is that then you become less physically active. You're going to then find things more difficult, which then like leads you to like restrict your life even more. It's self-reinforcing, you know. Um, you know, like if you stop exercising, then you're going to find that you're more easily tired just going on a short walk. And that just confirms that you're aging very quickly and you're not capable of doing it. Whereas I think you're right that if you continue to exercise throughout midlife and beyond, um, you're showing yourself that actually you've still got this potential. And then that change uh, that helps to reinforce your positive age beliefs, which then leads you to feel more motivated to continue with your exercise. Um, what I found uh, researching this chapter was that um, you know, it's kind of anecdotal, uh, but there were lots of people that I discovered who actually only started, though, doing kind of lots of exercise like into in their 60s. So there was oh, was that, that Paddy Jones, the uh, yeah, dancer? exactly. Yes. So she was brilliant. She, um, you know, really inspiring to speak to. Yeah, so she's the world's oldest um, acrobatic salsa dancer. Um, <laughs> and she only started in her 60s, actually. It was after her husband died and she, you know, kind of wanted to kind of, I guess, uh, find like a a kind of new purpose in her life and that was um what she did and then she's you know performed on stages across the world she's just fabulous um there was also i, I can't remember his name but a japanese guy who again started like running uh, marathons in his 60s and then built up to like, ultra marathons and you know he's still going in into his 80s so it's really incredible what people can believe uh, kind of believe and can achieve and yeah i think again it's like they've by just kind of questioning the limits uh, their own limits and edging outside of their comfort zone that's actually helping them to kind of prove to themselves that they're like the negative assumptions about aging might be wrong and that the the positive assumptions might actually be the way to go and and mm. you know it's through this kind of incremental change again that actually you can really build like quite a quite a big transformation in your life um just by kind of constantly testing your boundaries well i, I and I, that leads me to one of the questions i had then which is how do we how can we h- harness the power of expectations and I, I assume in the starting point is we must try and become or, or at least examine what our expectations are around particular things yeah that's exactly it and you know like um in a way, this is quite well practiced already in cognitive behavioural therapy when people have like 
depression or anxiety, that you'll be encouraged to just question your assumptions and stop yourself falling into kind of catastrophic ways of thinking. But actually, I think that's a really important skill called like um, cognitive restructuring that we can apply, you know, throughout our lives to all of the things that we face. Um, Like I always try to emphasize the fact that when I'm talking about the expectation effect, I'm not asking us to be unrealistically optimistic like it's important actually that you do recognize the kind of barriers that you're facing but what you really want to avoid is having a kind of catastrophic view of things so you you see one problem and then you make all these kinds of unfounded assumptions uh based on that um that perceived difficulty and you know the example of the age beliefs i think is a good one and that you're not you don't have to deny that actually you know the the body does slow down like you're not going to win the 100 meters at 90 you're competing against 20 year olds but just because you can't compete with a 20 year old doesn't actually mean that you still can't be really active as the um guy running these ultra marathons showed you know like that you can still do a lot more than you might have assumed and it's just that recalibration really that i'm asking people to do to see if if they could yeah, just Im- improve their expectations and maybe achieve more than what they had once um, thought was possible. But I suppose coming back to to, to your point, Greg, uh, are, are some of these expectations that we have almost um, unconscious sort of, almost like unconscious bias built into our system? And so I guess we would, we would need to become consciously aware of them before we could even um, take action to sort of say, well, that's, that's the wrong expectation to have in this particular circumstance. Yeah, so I think that's true. So I would say I don't think these expectation effects are kind of biologically hardwired, and I don't no. think we are actually born to kind of view the world negatively. Um, mm. But I do think like a lot of it just comes from our culture. Um, so like with stress, I think we read a lot of um, you know magazine articles, books, see lots of TV programs about the dangers of stress. And so it's natural that we've kind of internalized those beliefs. Um, same with aging. You know, we live in like a really ageist culture. Um, so you're seeing all the time like adverts that might show someone looking kind of confused as they get older, you know, or uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, adverts for like stair lifts might kind of um, show like older people kind of falling over and being very fragile and you just kind of absorb that and and what the research has done is actually it's shown that when you see that kind of uh, that kind of advertising that kind of message that that can have an immediate effect on your kind of capabilities as it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy so we know we are very susceptible to our environment and the kind of cues we're getting from our culture um, so uh, you know that but like you say, like you can't question that unless it's been pointed out to you that that might not be true. Mm. And so that's really what I'm trying to do with this book is to show people actually that there is evidence that this isn't that your negative assumption isn't true. And um, what the research shows is that actually just by learning about this evidence in a very kind of factual, objective way, that that can shift the mindset by itself. And then I think you do need to kind of reinforce that and do work and, you know, kind of set these small kind of challenges for yourself to kind of see if like once you've changed your expectations, you can achieve what you want to. So that's really important. Um, but actually, yeah, the first step is just to kind of be aware of what your assumptions are. Yeah, it's mind, it's mind over matter. As I, as, as, as my old rugby coach would say, it's mind over matter. I don't mind and you don't matter. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's sort of, it, it also, um, and you touched on it, on, on it there about the sort of our environment and, and society. And, and Greg and I interviewed a, um, 
an economist who who was looking at long, longevity, and um, you know one of the things that came up in that conversation was you know society does have and imposes quite a lot of rigidity and structure and rules around what we should be doing as as midlife people you know that we you know we shouldn't be going out and running an ultra marathon or or you know doing a you know an ironman triathlon or or whatever it might be so what you're what you've drawn together in the book actually has massive implications and ramifications for how we as a society kind of operate really Mm, yeah, and no, I'm glad you say that because I really think it does. I mean, because often I think actually the health campaigns that we have could actually reinforce some of the negative expectations. So I think, you know, like a lot of health messaging coming from like government bodies about stress, for example, by like, by not acknowledging that actually stress can sometimes be useful, that that is like leading people to have that stress is debilitating mindset that is then mm. damaging. Um, similarly, you know, in the past, actually, I think doctors would have advised against older people doing exercise. Uh, that's what scientists have told me who've been studying this for, you know, since the 1980s, that they've said it's a real shift now, actually, where you realise that no one is too old to do kind of exercise. But previously, the the worry would have been that it would only encourage kind of uh, broken bones and, you know, possibly like cardiac events. Um, so, yeah, I think it does have implications because we really need to be careful about how we communicate risk um, with the exercise example and, you know, concerning aging. Like, I think people obviously need to be aware that if you haven't been active, you shouldn't like risk like overdoing it and putting too much strain on your heart straight away. But I think that can be communicated in a way that kind of frightens people and stops them doing any exercise or just kind of leads them to kind of proceed with caution, but also gives them the optimism that actually, and it's a it's a fact, it's not even like um, misfounded optimism that just with practice that they will become better, they will become fitter. So yeah, I think we could do a lot actually with the way we talk about all of kind of our health and well-being in a way that doesn't just exacerbate the negative assumptions. Mm. And that might that might impact Greg when when we've talked about you know there's there's a there's a rump of people that aren't probably listening to this uh, podcast because they're not exercising in middle age and how do we how do you get to those people but actually if there is this expectation wrong expectation effect being created as a result of the messaging it might explain why there's a rump of people who who aren't doing very much from an exercise perspective. Yeah, I think that's very true. And, you know, I only have to think of certain family members that they just, they really do take the view now that they're just too old for exercise. And, you know, that's just not founded in the science. Um, I think also like that, so we have the kind of age beliefs, which are one kind of one, they constitute one kind of mindset. But I think there's also kind of, it's slightly orthogonal to that, but there's this mindset about whether fitness is just innate or whether it's something that you kind of acquire with practice. And I think that's also really important. So, you know, if people just go through life like those participants given the sham feedback in Alia Crumb's experiment, believing that they just can't do exercise and there's nothing they can really do to change that, um, then that's less motivating for them to kind of go to the gym. And I think actually it's going to make the process harder itself um and you know i think you're only that's only going to become reinforced as you get older um and the researchers have actually shown that just shifting this idea of uh the kind of whether uh kind of fitness is something that you can kind of grow into or whether it's something innate actually that in itself can help 
to change uh, how you age. So it seems that if you accept that you have control over your fitness and you know that it's kind of, you can't, you know, undo everything that comes with aging. But if you know that actually your lifestyle, your diet, you know, the amount of exercise you do can, you know, can make a big difference to how well you age, just emphasizing that fact can actually protect people from the negative stereotypes around them. So they're just less likely to absorb those negative stereotypes because they can see themselves as like, you know, you can think, well, that might be true on average, but I'm going to be the exception. Um, And so I think that's very powerful, actually, to just empower people to realize that, you know, a lot of what happens as we get older is within our control. Uh, going back to what you were saying, Jason, about when, the, when we interviewed Andrew Scott, the economist, and we were talking about, yeah, age is just a number. Um, but human nature ten- tends to want to be comp- compartmentalized things and pigeonhole things to say, okay, because we, you know, we, we've chatted on, you know, what is middle age? What's the boundaries of middle age? And there shouldn't be. But they've but I recently read that I think it was in the Metro that old age starts at 76. Oh. <laughs> now, that probably would have started at 66, you know, 20 years ago or something. But it's like, this is the age you're old from 76 onwards. Well, that's not necessarily true. No. There's, there's going to be some very young uh, thinking 76 year olds and some old thinking 36 year olds, you know. So it's. It, it, it doesn't matter. But unfortunately, society does put boundaries on things. And then you say, oh, I'm, gonna, I, I'm in this boundary, I'm in this sector, and I, this is what I should be doing, rather than thinking outside the box. Um, yeah, no, that's totally true. And actually, another piece of evidence for the effects of um, age beliefs on overall longevity and health um, actually looks precisely at that. So this was one of the big studies of civil servants working in Whitehall, um, you know, big longitudinal study. Mm. And they, as part of that study, they just asked, like, when do you define middle age ending and old age starting? And what you saw was that if people um, said that, like, they put that marker at, I think it was 50, um, they were much more likely to die at a younger age compared to those who put it at like 60 or 70. So, and I think it's exactly as you say, and it's again, it's from behavior and kind of these physiological um, responses. But you can see that if you, once you reach that milestone, if you think, well, that's it, like I'm an old person now, you're going to start embodying, you know, what you see as being an, as the behavior of an old person, you're not going to exercise. And you're going to see like the world as being more threatening now because you're this kind of disadvantaged advantaged group and you, you know, you're weaker, you're vulnerable. So yeah, I think like uh, we can have like our beliefs about aging in general, but we also have to be careful about how we look at particular milestones, things like um, retirement, you know, things like mm. those big birthdays and to check that we're not, we don't see them as this kind of, barrier that once we've passed like our life has changed forever and that we can't actually continue acting the way we have been previously well that's what andrew scott was saying in his book uh, the hundred year life was that we've got to get away from the idea of education work retirement it's, it's got to be many different you're transitioning between stages and there's maybe five or six stages in your life and and you, you don't become rigid um, or, or, uh, or fixed by what society expects of you. So, you know, change your expectations of what is expected. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I think that's really important that, 
you know, like I said, that, you know, even if you see a lot of these expectations of other people around you, where you can consider yourself to be an exception to the rules, like you don't have to follow the path that other people are taking. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I mean, for, just from a, an, um, we've all probably been there in terms of getting on a bike and, and just not feeling that sort of, that, that, um, you're not feeling the exercise and other days you go on it and try and do the same workout and it feels absolutely brilliant. And chances are somewhere in your, there's been a mindset that, that, that something has happened to you and you're just not quite there. You're not physiologically uh, responding well enough. And, that's, and it's not because your body, you're just unfit or whatever. It's just because the, your mind is just not tuned in properly in some way. I, I, I That's how I see it. Yeah. it I, I can't think of anything else that would, that would change that changes it so much. No. Um, you see that you see it at an elite level competition where where someone just freezes or or you know th- they are just very <laughs> they've trained for, for so long and then something happens and then that's it they they they're gone they just they can't do it anymore. Mm. Um. So the power of the mind is it, it never ceases to amaze me. No. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, so in the my book, I talk about it's almost the opposite phenomenon where like coaches have given their um their athletes placebos but they didn't realize they were placebos they thought they were performance enhancing drugs and then you know like they kind of the cyclists like did the time trial of their life or whatever because they thought they had this kind of magic like medication in their bodies um so yeah we know that mindsets are really important in the moment with like how we perform and you know i think like at the gym or whatever like you're just gonna have bad days sometimes Mm. um and again it's what i'm trying to advocate is that you just don't catastrophize that and i think for Mm. people who aren't very fit um and who as you know just starting to go to the gym then that can be a real problem actually that you have a bad day you know it just feels really tough like you feel uncomfortable you're not performing at your usual rate and you just assume that that is the sign that you're never going to get fitter. There's all a waste of time. And so you just give up. Um, and I just think actually we can reframe that, those experiences. And, you know, part of it is just saying that like going to the gym is winning half the battle, you know, like just turning up is half the battle. That's mm. really an important mindset. But, you know, I think also like just making sure that people do focus on that trajectory rather than each individual performance. And so it's mm. just like you want a positive kind of improvement over lots of different visits to the gym or, you know, lots of different um, cycle rides rather than like pinning all your hopes to each one. And then if you underperform, beating yourself up about like one bad day. Yeah. Yeah. David, did you come across anything um, as to, and this is, I guess, from a purely selfish perspective now, but uh, around meditation, whether meditation helped try to kind of, um, reframe or at least observe and then reframe the your expectations Mm. so i think that is like fascinating research on meditation and aging and so you know i spoke about the cellular kind of changes that come with aging um it does seem that actually regular meditators do have that kind of slower epigenetic clock uh much like the people with the positive beliefs and it's probably i think working for a similar mechanism 
I don't know necessarily whether the meditation itself in that context was changing people's expectations, but it's helping them to cope with the stresses of getting older. So they have a reduced, you know, physiological response to stress. And then that in turn is kind of um, just reducing the wear and tear on their tissues. So meditation is really powerful. We know that. Um, In terms of whether it's changing the assumptions themselves, like I don't think that has been tested, but I would expect it probably does because if you're kind of training yourself to have a non-judgmental view of the way that you're feeling, um, I think that is going to stop that kind of catas- uh, catastrophizing kind of thought process. That you're you're better able to just kind of notice, like when you're making an assumption that is not founded in in kind of real life or objective fact, and then stopping yourself from going along that kind of route and recalibrating your thinking. So even though I don't think there is research looking at that specific question, like my um, my assumption is that if you're meditating and you're doing it right and you're doing it regularly, then that will be really beneficial for cultivating the positive expectations. Yeah, I, I, was, I was just thinking in terms of an extreme example, I guess, would be uh, you know, free divers who, you know, get themselves into a very relaxed, observant state. And so when that sort of physiological response comes to breathe, they can recognize it, but actually almost ignore it, uh, carry on regardless. And uh, it seemed, I just, you know, whether there were any analogies that you could then draw, you know, that if you were used to that sort of practice, that you've got an expectation, you could observe that expectation, but not necessarily then um, sort of act on it. So I think actually, like, what comes to mind is the research on expectation with pain management. Um, So we know that pain is really susceptible to our expectations, you know, like placebo painkillers are really effective. Um, And also, we know that when people are feeling especially anxious, that that kind of exacerbates the pain. Like one of the researchers told me that often the anxiety about your painful injuries can be like um, like pouring gasoline on a fire. Um, and it's, you know, changing things like the nerve signaling is actually um, amplifying, like adding a loudspeaker to the pain um, nerves that are entering your brain. So it's making it um, just a lot more salient to you and making the experience just a lot worse. Um, but I think like, there's also evidence that mindfulness can help manage pain. And I think it is happening through this kind of process that like you're feeling the pain and you're recognizing the, the symptom and the discomfort and you're not fighting that, but you're also not necessarily jumping down that path of like assuming that like the pain itself is a sign that your body's being damaged and continuing to be damaged and you know, you're reducing some of the fear associated with the pain. And so I think that is, in a sense, an expectation effect that really, like, fits with all of the research on placebos. That's interesting. It's interesting. Um, So so, so with with my patients, it's a case of if they understand what's wrong with them, they feel better. And Mm -hmm. and in the extreme cases, when I I was... well, I was first qualified, I was, in, I was working in a hospital and, and you get referrals direct, directly from consultants, uh, uh, clinics. And they come around, um, f- f- they've broken, their, they, they've injured themselves somehow. And the amount of times I've explained what's wrong with them, I haven't even sort of touched them as such. I've just said, well, this is what's happened to you. Um, they say, oh, so it's not cancer then. Mm. And then you can see the look of relief on their face. They've, they've catastrophized it. You know, this, yeah. I've got cancer. 
<laughs> so no, <laughs> you've just sprained your ankle. You know, it, it, it's something as 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 binary as that almost. Yeah. And they and they are thinking, okay, great, and they just walk off. You don't see them again. They're just yeah. happy that they're not going to die, and and they'll they'll get on, just get on with it. So yeah. it, it's 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 as you say that that the expectation. You know, what, what am I? What what was what has happened to me? And I don't. And if I don't know, then fear will escalate. Yeah, and pain and, and stress levels get worse, and pain levels get worse, and yeah, so, and and in some cases, patients are they're in a lot of pain, like mm. neck pain. They can wake up with a stiff neck, and it's excruciating. It's really yeah. nasty. But and they go, well, what have I done? So, well, not much. You know, the pain level is just way beyond what your the physiological response. It's like you've burnt the toast, but the fire alarm's going off. All oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that, and that's that's it. And when you sort of explain that, you go, oh, okay. And that is in, that can be enough to get their pain under control. I said, don't worry, you'll be better soon. And mm. you set their expectations that they will get better. Yeah. Alternatively, you're told, you know, in six weeks you'll be fine and they're not. That's when they <laughs> oh, my God, why aren't I better? Yeah. That's so, that, so you've got to set the right expectation. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you raised that because I think one of the dangers in all of these expectation effects, but especially in medicine, is that you don't want to set unrealistic um, or dishonest expectations because mm. when those are disappointed, then that's when you start to really freak out about what's happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. that's when you're more likely to start catastrophizing. So, you know, it has to be based on like a really honest, like objective appraisal. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, like there is actually research looking at, you know, how like doctors kind of manner with their patients can kind of, um change their symptoms and you know like you said i think if you have the optimist if you give a kind of empathetic and optimistic kind of message mm. just telling them you know if it is going to get better naturally just telling them kind of when they can expect to feel some kind of improvement that that does actually accelerate the recovery like in the way yeah. that you described yeah. um and there's also a study looking at um immunotherapies for allergies um so you know where people take kind of an increasing dose of like the peanut protein. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And that, um, you know, that does produce some unpleasant side effects for the patients, you know, like, um, you know, because they're having a minor allergic reaction, they can start to kind of develop hives or, you know, have unpleasant feelings in their mouths, you know, all of these things. Um, and the, the researchers just helped them to reframe those feelings. So they they kind of told them what to look out for that would signal like a really dangerous allergic reaction. And then they told them like, if you're not experiencing those particular symptoms, then actually what you're feeling, this minor discomfort, is nothing to be worried about. And is actually just a sign that the immunotherapy is working. It's actually like strengthening your immune system, like retraining the immune system and just reframing those uh, unpleasant sensations in that way. And not only reduced the number of side effects that the participants reported actually changed some of the objective biological measures of the treatment's efficacy so they were more likely to show the higher levels of the uh, kind of good in inverted commas antibodies that can help to prevent the full-blown allergic reaction um, occurring when they were eating kind of a full whole peanut so um so yeah it's just like you were saying it's just one of these things where actually just helping patients to understand what's going on in their bodies rather than it seeming like a mystery and rather than letting like mm. their worst fears kind of run through their heads all mm. the time that can in itself just be incredibly powerful mm. Mm. fascinating stuff yeah. david um uh, we can't we can't not touch on it we're we're a midlife athlete podcast there is an element of health and fitness um do you, do you do any 
forms of exercise, fitness, sports? And if so, which which ones? Not sports, but um, I do work out kind of, I try to do like a high intensity kind of uh, fitness session each day or go to the gym and kind of, you know, run on the treadmill, do weights like every other day. So um, definitely that's something that I've always tried to do. But, um, you know, I think I did have this negative perception of my fitness that made it feel quite unpleasant. So I kind of did it, you know, against my will almost. Um, <laughs> you know, I knew it was good for me, but I didn't enjoy it. But by shaping my kind of mindset towards that, by reappraising the feelings that I was having and by looking at that kind of focusing on my trajectory and not comparing myself to other people the whole time, um, that all actually has made the um, experience just a lot more pleasurable and like now it's one of the things I most enjoy with my life and that really happened that change actually happened while I was writing the book over the lockdowns in fact and you know doing these kind of um high intensity workouts at home just you know became part of my routine that I really appreciated Mm. it's interesting yeah and we ask we ask all guests the same final two questions but um so if if you and you you hinted that you've got into that sort of high intensity sessions but if you if you were to sort of relive a moment of those sessions perhaps that you did um what would you like to relive over and over and over again what are the what's that sort of exercise groundhog day look like for you mm, i do think like one of the things that really stick in my mind was um when i, I learned actually that your expectations can affect like whether you have the runner's high or not so you know uh-huh. in much the same way that like if you have a placebo analgesic you can release the you're more likely to release these endogenous opioids actually the same happens with like the psychological benefits of exercise and the benefits for your mood that um you're just much more likely to kind of feel good if you have the expectation it will make you feel good um but i do think uh, it's a shame because i think you kind of do become habituated to that a little bit so i don't think it's ever going to feel quite as good as the first time I kind of tried that out. And, you know, it was revelatory to me. So yeah, that's what I would like to have every single workout is that level of kind of the runner's hide that I had the first time I realized my expectations could have an effect. So, Well, Greg, we can actually link maybe the expectation effect to some of those answers that we've had now over the, uh, <laughs> over the many episodes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. And, and finally then, if you, if you could only ever do two forms of exercise, size or sport or whatever it might be what would those what would those two be Mm, uh running i think is just my favorite and um you know especially like you know good weather like um, i live in um east london so kind of along the canals is my favorite form of exercise um that and swimming i just love i don't do it enough but yeah um i couldn't yeah see a future without swimming at all really so yeah brilliant fantastic brilliant david it's been a real pleasure having you on thank mm. you very much for your time um it's uh, fascinating up, yeah fascinating but also really tied up a few loose ends for us mm. in terms of other episodes so it'd be oh, really, really nice to link mm. link it through um mm. so yeah really appreciate your time thank you for coming on no yeah it's absolutely my pleasure they were great questions and you know i really enjoyed hearing your perspectives so thanks so much cheers david thank thanks you. david cool